Welcome to a live and kick in the 90s football podcast. The podcast is more 90s than Chris Tarrant's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Jeremy Clarkson. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast. Thank you very much for hitting that download button. What, harder than a Tony Yabara shot? I've probably said that before, but came to my mind as I said it so but thank you for joining us as always on this a full-length show of Alive and Kicking but I'm sure you've been catching up with our I'm going to keep saying new but it's not new because I think we're now 10 episodes in um, this week in the 90s is something that we do now do every week where we look back at what happened 20-30 years ago in the 1990s football uh, with the regulars Joel Young and Matthew Christ so if you haven't checked that out already, um, they don't go out of date because it's 90s based. So yeah, there's 10 episodes to get your teeth into. So go back and listen to those. Uh, but today's show, yes, it's a more full length one. Uh, I'm not just looking back at a specified week in the 90s, but a certain subject that's very, very relevant to 2018. Um, unless you've been living under a rock over the past week, um, you'll know that it is the end of an era in North London, uh, a massive era, one that for some people has only ever been one era in, in Arsenal, of course, and, and that is Mr. Arsene Wenger, uh, or Wenger, sorry, I should say, it's Anglo-Saxonising it there, but um, I suppose he's been Anglo-Saxonising the 22 years that he's been at Arsenal, that which is crazy when you think about uh, managerial appointments these days. I know I've seen a fair few QPR managers in 22 years left, so to have one is an astronomical achievement. Uh, but bearing in mind that he uh, decided to call it a quit and leave Arsenal this this summer in a massive decision for all and finally settle the Wenger in and Wenger out debate, it'd be remiss of us not to look back at the original appointment and timing of Arsene Wenger's arrival in English football at Arsenal and how it changed the club. So that's today's show. I mean, well, how could we not? I think there was a couple of people on Twitter that said, you've got to do a show on this. Um, so we will be doing that. I mean, we've covered it in sort of different sort of moments where we've done this week in the 90s. Um, and also when we did our season by season breakdown, especially the 97, 98 season, where we looked back at the whole as campaign. Obviously, that was the big season that uh, Arsenal won the double, which we'll talk more about of today as well. But um, I think it'd be good to look at his appointment, what it did for English football um, and what it did for Arsenal in these those early years of Arsene Wenger's, uh, Arsene Wenger's reign at Highbury. Of course, it was then, not the Emirates at Highbury. Um, I asked you guys on Twitter as well um, what your memories were of the appointment of Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. And of course you got back to us because you lovely people always do. Um, Liam, at Liam the Eggman, uh, said, I remember thinking, who the effing hell is this guy? 18 months later, we'd won the double, lol. I think that was a lot of uh, people's opinion. We'll get into that. Um, Corinthian Collector, obviously, friend of the show, and it was on our last full-length episode when we did Corinthians diggers. Just a picture of him in a coat. I don't think the coat came in until quite late, though. I don't remember the coat in the 90s, but it's always fun watching Arsene Wenger try and do up that big, massive coat. He also says, I always think of those glasses and slightly later, the never-ending coats. There you go. Uh, Colin Bailey at Noddy18 said, did he used to smoke on the bench? I'm sure I remember him to see him didn't do that. I know he did it at Monaco. I don't ever recall him doing it at Arsenal. I could be wrong. Tweet us at AK90s if I am wrong. But yeah, I don't ever remember that um, in England. Definitely seen images this week of him smoking at Monaco, which is crazy when you think about it. 
Um, Lee Hodgkinson at Lee underscore Hodgkinson says, has to be, be the Fergie interview. He's come from Japan. Yes, we'll mention that, I'm sure. I can already hear Joel's voice mentioning that. I'm sure he'll bring that up on today's show. Um, CM and FM Nostalgia at CM9798 says, agree. Sure, this was the spark of their rivalry. Probably was, definitely. I mean, the rivalry will, will touch on. I think it really sparked off probably in the early 2000s, but it all started in that late night, especially the 99 season, where Arsenal could have really stopped them doing the double. Dave Dodgson says, lots of playground jokes at school about Arsenal, Arsenal and Arse. Corinthian Corrector actually replied to that and said, I remember, not a remember, sorry, you got me saying it wrong there, mate. Fanboy calling him Arsehole Wang Er at school. Bit harsh, I always thought. Yeah, but he ain't going to say that now, is he, after the double? So yeah, a few memories from our collective AK90s people uh, on Twitter then. If you want to follow the show, and why aren't you already? You can do at AK90s on Twitter and on Facebook. And if you want to do us an even bigger solid, as they say, um, if you're a... Um, subscribe to this podcast on itunes if you leave us a five star rating and review it really really helps us um i think the content is getting bigger and bolder and better but those sort of things really do help us as well uh, but it's not all arsenal today either um because i like to mix it up uh, a little bit for people who i mean i hope we cover it to a neutral's point of view as well as an arsenal point of view so it's interesting to all our listeners um, but we have got something that's slightly left field of the show as well just to get that a little bit of contrast our interview today is with former aston villa goalkeeper nigel spink um i must admit the quality of it isn't brilliant uh, he was driving at the time because he's a courier man these days imagine that nigel spink coming to pick you up your goods in his a uh, claret and blue van but um it's it's Decent nonetheless, but I just wanted to warn you, the quality, he is driving, it goes a bit in and out at times, but you can hear uh, everything he, he does say. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna leave it there, I think. Um, it's a quick, short intro from me, um, just to say thank you as well for downloading. I hope you enjoyed the last full-length episode we did on Corinthian Figures. I thought that was a really, really fun show um, we did with the guys there. Um, if you wanted to do more shows a bit like that, um, I'm sure there's stuff we haven't covered yet, um, as well as watch-alongs, please do let us know at AK90s what we'd like, you'd like us to cover. I know a couple of people will keep saying about a Scottish-themed show, and I am trying to piece that together at the moment, where we'll look back at kind of mainly Rangers and Celtic, but a few other Scottish teams thrown in, um, because it's something we haven't completely covered, and obviously some great names and great games um, in the 90s between uh, the Old Firm, as well as the, the rest of the Scottish Premier League, as it was then. Um, we've also got another kit podcast coming up um the great kit oracle john devlin is going to join me and um, we're going to talk about world cup kit stuff ahead of his new world cups uh, book and his new international book that's coming out uh, next month in may so yeah look out for that one but today's show yeah it's all about arson wenger with a little bit of nigel spink thrown in but yes mainly wenger's revolution arson who as it was at the time all for your listening pleasure so enjoy the show and uh, keep it 90s of course Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Welcome back to Alive and Kick In. And yes, we are going back in time to 1996. How could we not do this theme of a podcast? We just really couldn't, bearing in mind the news, the massive news that rocked North London and, and football in general uh, last weekend. Uh, last weekend? Last week, of course. Um, so let me introduce my guests who are going to delve into everything 
Arsene Wenger and the early stages of his Arsenal career. Firstly, I mean, he's part of the furniture. He might as well be sitting right next to me. If we weren't doing this over Skype, he probably would be in my empty office as I'm about to move. He's a social media mogul. He's going to give us the more balanced, neutral view of Arsene Wenger um, and probably mention Janinho. It's Joe Young. How you doing, Joe? Yeah, I'm very well. I can only talk about the numerous beatings that Arsenal dished out to us in in the 1990s. Yeah, there's one, one especially... Yeah, there's one literally today, actually. I've just seen Sid, you know, king of the Twitter sting, uh, tweet about one that was 1999 at the the Riverside. We'll talk, we can talk about that. But yeah, um, it was one literally today, which is what, the 24th of April. Uh, But giving us the full on gooner view uh, of what happened when Arsene Wenger arrived in uh, North London. He is a journalist and an author, Chaz Nuki Burden. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us. Um, before we get into all things, Wenger, you have, last time we spoke, I think your new book was about to come out. How is it doing? Where can people buy it? What's it all about? Right, so it's called Running Cheaper Than Therapy, and it's a collection of uh, humour, science, and motivation all around running, uh, including guest contributions from various uh, famous people who are interested in running, including David Baddiel, who's a bit of a 90s football Indeed. figure himself. And it's available from all good and immoral bookshops alike. <laughs> well, there, if you're into your running, go out and, and get that book. David Baddiel, he retweeted one of our tweets last week about fantasy football. So I know uh, Joe's going to get him on the show, aren't you, Joe? That's, that's your uh, plan. Well, I'm, I'm still trying. <laughs> he owes me a favour scene as one of my jokes is in his show. So yeah, <laughs> he owes me a favour. But, uh, you know, he's not having it so far. He's ignoring stuff. He did tweet me last week when I asked him who his favourite Swindon player was. He said Don Rogers. What? I offered up Jan Agafjord. Why did you ask him who his favourite Swindon player was? <laughs> because he was doing he was doing oh, gig in Swindon. Right. Okay. Fine. That makes sense now. Okay. Fair enough. It's um, a key question in any conversation. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I had a fact. Yes, who's, who's your favourite Swindon player? My favourite all. I can't. Paul Bowden was the first one that came to mind, but that's mainly because I think of that miss for Wales rather than Swindon. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I can't really. Uh... Um, Yanth, you're off for me. Well, Jazz, come on. I love them all equally. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go <laughs> yoga on this. I'm gonna try and make out this is because I'm spiritual rather than that. I can't think of any other than Fjordtoff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good. Like, John Ken... Mocker. Yeah, John Mocker was there, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Kevin Hur- uh, Herlock was he there? Ter- no, yeah, Terry he was there. Herlock, yeah. Herlock, sorry, not Terry Herlock. Um, there was a few others. Yeah, they don't like to remember that season. They did beat QPR twice that season, though. Arr. Anyway, let's talk Arsenal. Before we talk 90s, uh, Chaz, how did you take the news, first of all? Well, what camp were you in? Were you up winger in, winger out? How did you take the news last week? I took it dreadfully. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was winger in right until the end. I mean, if he came in and out, as well as wanting to give the poor man a hug, because I do feel sorry for him, I'd probably try and talk him into sort of changing his mind, partly just to annoy loads of Arsenal fans, because although I am an Arsenal fan, I really don't like Arsenal fans. <laughs> um, so, no, I, was, I did take it quite... I mean, I did kind of expect that he might go this summer, and certainly that if he didn't, it would be next summer. So, you know, the change was at most sort of 14, 15 months away anyway. But I wasn't expecting, and I don't know anyone who was expecting the announcement that day. There were little pockets of time where it would make sense for them to announce it, but last Friday was not one. And I've written a piece for 442, um, which I wrote actually in the minutes after the announcement. And it's quite angry in got parts. And, yeah, and um, yeah, that's really, if anyone wants to um, see that, just Google. Uh, I was Wenger in until the end, but thank goodness he's gone. You can find it. Um, 
And yeah, I just feel like the poor guy took so much abuse, um, really, really bad abuse at times from Arsenal fans, um, did so much for the club. And yes, things did go a bit wrong in the second half of his reign. But even during that, you know, three FA Cups in four years, possibly a European final to come this year. You know, it's, it's a sort of disastrous time that a lot of clubs would dream of. Yeah, I, I always think at the beginning of the season, if you you know, there's three main trophies plus Europe to go for. If you're winning one of them, I know they haven't title challenged for a few years. It's not all bad, is it? Despite what Arsenal exactly. fan TV might moan about, I don't know what they're going to do. Well, next I, season. I was just about to say about them. You know, you can just see it in three years' time. They're going to be making videos going. We should never have got rid of Arsenal. We've had three managers in three years. We've spent X million pounds. And I can just see that coming over the hill straight away from a lot of that disenfranchised Arsenal fans. You know, Johnny Mitchell said it. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? I call <laughs> it the uh, the Alan Kerbishley factor. That's what I call it. Because I, you know, I lived and my best friend is a Cheltenham fan. And I know a lot of Cheltenham fans and they all wanted him out. And they all thought the grass was greener. And he went. And I mean, I'm not saying that they're going to go to the vast fall that what happened to Cheltenham. Um, but they've never been the same. They were a Premier League, established Premier League team. They thought they could do more. And yeah. I know he had to move on at some point, but that always sort of lingers in the back of my head. Don't always think it's always greener, and obviously Man United have shown that as well. It's taken them time to get back to the perch. Um, did it surprise you, Joe, the timing of it? Or, I mean, do you expect it this season? Um, I think I expected it in, in the summer, yeah, not especially now. I mean, now, I, th- I think he's probably going to get the send-off he deserves now. Although still on Sunday, you know, it wasn't chock a block, was it? And that surprised me at the Emirates. That was a, they blamed the London Marathon for that, didn't they? <laughs> well, you know, you can blame lots of things. I think I would have made the I think I would have made the effort to go if I had a season ticket. Even if I was disgruntled and everything, I would have just got myself there. It's uh, it's quite ridiculous, really. I, I'm sort of with Chaz on this. I think there's a lot of fans who were just particularly ungrateful for what for what went on. I mean, they still could have Bruce Rio. <laughs> well, that's segue into that, shall we? Because that's the perfect segue. Let's take you back then to 1996, uh, 22 years ago. Um, and Bruce Rioch was the man in charge at Arsenal. Chaz, just sort of fill us in. At that point, where are Arsenal? Obviously, they'd finished the George Graham era. That ended, obviously, in a bit of controversy. They, they appointed Bruce Rioch, who was one of the sort of upcoming managers at the time. He'd done quite well at Bolton. It's, I mean, I suppose you'd kind of compare it now to someone like Eddie Howe or Sean Dyche. He was of that ilk, wasn't he, at the time? It didn't quite work out for Bruce Rioch. So in the summer of 96, he was removed after an argument with David Dean over transfers and Ian Wright as well. There was a clash there. Where were Arsenal before the, the, the rummagings of a new manager? Well, we just scraped our way into the UEFA Cup uh, the last day of the season. <clears throat> Burkamp and Platt are two new signings for the Rioch season. Had sort of knocked in some late goals in the last game of the season to, to qualify us for that. But, um, and there had been an improvement in the style of play. Um, you know, the style of play at the end of the George Graham era had been really, really bad. Like, really negative. Uh, no creativity in the midfield at all. And so by the time Rioch left in 96, you know, we had the likes of Burkamp, Platt, uh, Paul Merson uh, sort of rejuvenated. And there were sort of signs that we were moving in a better direction in terms of the style of football. I don't think anybody really felt we'd taken any huge strides forward in terms of actual results and so on. But uh, we had certainly improved a bit. But, uh, yeah, there wasn't a feeling that Rioch had been a magician. And I don't think... I mean, I don't remember being upset by him going. I remember being a bit surprised because I felt... Mm. You know, he'd been there for a year. He'd got us back into Europe. He'd improved our style of play. It sort of felt a bit odd to, to sack somebody 
or for somebody to leave under those circumstances. But having said that, you know, if you upset the club's uh, leading goalscorer and top player, you're really uh, lead, leaving yourself open to trouble. And as we've heard and possibly you've discussed in other pods, I think that he struggled to sort of deal with some of the bigger names at Arsenal. He used to sort of tell Ian Wright and Merson, oh, you know, when you finish, you should do this. This is sort of what John McGinley used to do. And, uh, and it might have been a perfectly valid example, but for people like Ian Wright and Merson, they didn't want to be hearing about, um, <clears throat> you know, what John McGinley did. And I think also people have got quite tired of George Graham's authoritarian ways. And Bruce Rioch was also an authoritarian. But the difference is, is that George Graham had won all of those trophies. And when you've won all those trophies and when you've brought a young team up, which is effectively what he did at the beginning of his reign, he had a natural authority. Whereas I think Rioch walked in and wanted that same authority and hadn't earned it. Mm. No, no, it's a, it's a good it's a good point you make there, especially with George Graham as well, because I think there was a lot of the old guard still there, of course, which we'll talk about in a second. I mean, for Joel, for Bruce Rioch, it didn't really that was it for him, really. He didn't he went and became assistant manager at QPR under our Stuart Houston role reversal uh, era, which didn't go very well in all aspects of of, of that reign, but it didn't it, it kind of tainted him for the rest of his career, didn't it, for Bruce? Well, obviously, I mean, Bruce Rioch is a really important person in the history of Middlesbrough. Uh, because when we were going into liquidation and all the rest of it in 1986, Bruce Rioch came in and saved the club, and not only saved the club, but galvanised the squad, got us promoted, you know, from the third division, got us back into the first division at the first time of action, you know, two two sets of promotions. So um, on T side, he's a very revered figure, but I think even we thought at the time, <laughs> you know, this is a bit of an odd one. And we played Arsenal quite early at Highbury in a Sky game. And Barnby, the former Spurs man, scored for us, put us in the lead. And I think Ian Wright equalised the one all on a Sunday mm. afternoon. Yeah, it was Dennis, Dennis Bergkamp's debut. Den- yeah, is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. Obviously, Rioch helped bed in Dennis Bergkamp. So that's yeah. an incredible thing that... Um, Wenger benefited from, I think, because I was watching Thierry on radio the other day and he was saying that Bergkamp is still the best player that he played with in all that time. And I think, you know, he was able to, Wenger was able to reap the rewards of, of having a Bergkamp that was settled, that was had got used to the English game. And then it was like, right, what can we do next to kick on? So, but I, I remember thinking even on side that we always thought Rioch was a bit of a strange decision because he'd been at Borough, he'd been at uh, Bolton, and, you know, yeah, I'm a Middlesbrough fan and Borough Bolton Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a strange, but it didn't work out as as we found out from Bruce Rioch. But yeah, even then was maybe a left field appointment. So with him gone, um, a lot of the two favourites names, but one of them really surprised me. So the big favourite going into the ninety six ninety seven season was uh, Johan Cruyff. He was the favourite former Barcelona manager. Um, although even then, as we'll talk about in a second, foreign managers in the Premier League and the top flight were very unusual. Um, you had Vengelos at the start of the decade at Villa, Ozzy Adilis at Spurs, and then Rud Hullet had taken over that summer as player manager of Chelsea. So it was still unheard of. Terry Venables was the other name in who was linked with Arsenal, which I can't, can't believe that he would have taken over there given his Spurs link and the dodginess, alleged dodginess he was going on at the FA at the time. So they were the kind of two names. But David Dean had this other name in mind, of course, which we know. But I mean, Chas, do you remember these these rumours about Johan Cruyff at the time? Um, was there anyone else you thought you'd like as manager? Yeah, I do. I remember all the rumours. I remember being not as opposed to Terry Venables as, as you might think, just because 
he had that that sort of image at the time of so much charisma uh, and also of just being so good with players. And it just felt like more than anything, the team needed uh, sort of like he was almost like the anti-Rioc in that sense. It's like where Rioc wanted to be their grandfather or something, their authoritarian grandfather, like Venables wanted to be their, I don't know, their sort of twinkly-eyed uncle or something. And I felt like <laughs> he could have done, I mean, who couldn't, who amongst us couldn't do with a twinkly-eyed uncle? I yeah. try and be one to my nieces to, to varying levels of success. But um, so I do remember... Do you leave the brown paper envelopes filled with... <laughs> around the well, house. I, I did take one of them to Arsenal, um, but she still speaks to me. Oh, um, <laughs> was she wake her out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember actually. It was uh, she was very young at the time, and I remember that the crowd were booing uh, as ever at Arsenal. We're such a bunch of tossers. The crowd were booing our own players, and I remember her just looking round to me with real purity in her eyes and just saying, "Surely it's stupid to boo your own team." And I just thought, "Yes, <laughs> you know." She's just summed up exactly how I feel as a football fan, and um. Exactly. But yeah, so I remember all the rumours and um, I would love to say that as soon as they mentioned Wenger, I was like, this sounds really, really good and I can see everything that's going to happen. Of course, I didn't. I wasn't opposed because I sort of immediately liked, as soon as I saw pictures of him in the papers and all that, I just thought he looks really geeky and he looks really introverted and he looks quite sort of gentle. And all that, and I just, you know, being no big barrel-chested ball myself, um, I quite like the idea of such a character in the dugout. It just seemed really different, and I just thought if such a character sort of could make it, that would be even better to have somebody like that, like a geeky, bespectacled Frenchman doing well. So I can't say that I thought or knew he'd do well, but I, I do remember thinking, yeah, I like the, I like the sort of the sound of that, and. I was actually working in football magazines at the time, as you know, and um, so I was sort of, you know, used to blag my way into press conferences and stuff. So work, I was working at 90 Minutes magazine. And yeah, I mean, within about the first sentence that he ever spoke in a press conference, I was out. I just absolutely loved him. He was so different to every other manager I'd ever sort of heard speak or seen speak on TV before. And it's not to say that, you know, I didn't like the others um, but he was just so different and he just seemed so assured. Just it didn't seem to be any tension in him, any doubt. He was very literally Zen, you know, he'd come over from Japan and he'd learnt a lot of sort of cultural and spiritual things over there as well. I didn't know that at the time, but it certainly showed. Um, and so, yeah, I really liked him. And I remember once in one of the early press conferences, um, as he walked to the sort of the lectern or the desk or whatever, someone just leaned over and whispered in my ear, it looks like he's about to give a lecture on quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, he probably could have done. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I do remember the rooms. And Nick Hornby, though, I think did sum it up quite uh, humorously. He said, I remember seeing um, that in the paper they had a list of names, Johan Cruyff, Terry Venables, a few others, and at the end, Arsene Wenger. And... Nick Hornby said, and I remember reading it and thinking, oh, I bet it'll be Wenger. That'll be just like Arsenal to a point, the only one that no one's heard of. 
Yeah, <laughs> I've literally got that quote in front of me, Chaz. I was about to read it. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, he says, I remember when Bruce wrote was sacked, one of the papers had three or four names. It was Terry Venables, Johan Cruyff, and then at the end, Arsene Wenger. I remember thinking as a fan, I bet it's fucking Arsene Wenger because I haven't heard of him <laughs> and I've heard of the other two. Trust Arsenal to appoint the boring one that you've never heard of. The great Nick Hornby, of course, of Fever Pitch fame. I mean, it was very unusual. I mean, in this today and age, there is, it's hard to hide managers. Joe, we've talked about this before when we talk about players and World Cups because it's, it's, the world of football is so much more open in 2018. What was social media and TV coverage than it was in 1996 so it was really unusual to see this I still don't I mean, I've been researching all day how David Dean or, or why David, no one's ever asked him or gone on record how and why because there's very little to what David Dean or ever says but it was so left field and what did you remember as a neutral remembering the name Arsene Wenger for the first time well you know nobody had a clue I mean, yeah. <laughs> Arsene you know, who was the famous headline it yeah was, it was the Ferguson quote wasn't it you yeah. know it's the, he's come over here he's come from Japan and that was all anybody had in their heads. We've got somebody from Japan. And what was sort of conveniently forgotten for the for the narrative or whatever is the fact that he'd been at Monaco for seven years. And I think one of the only um, voices singing his praises in the in the English game was Glenn Hoddle, who worked under him and and you know backed him backed him to the hilt and said, "I think he'll be I think he'll be a huge success there." But nobody else really knew what's going on, and there was this kind of slightly. You know, not even slightly, just this disparaging, just horror show, really. Very early in Wenger's reign, I remember seeing Vieira play, and it was like, who's the number four? Who's the number four? And it's like, oh, there's just this young lad that they've just got from, um, I think, from AC Milan, wasn't it? Is that, yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for Vieira, I mean, uh, for me, when he came, you know, like I said, I liked Wenger in the, in the press conferences, but what... I remember when Vieira, who came slightly before Wenger officially took over um, or officially arrived, uh, although he was a Wenger signing, I remember thinking randomly, well, not entirely randomly, I remember thinking, I'm going to judge what this new guy's like, Wenger, on this one player. Like, because he's such an odd signing. Like, he wasn't a sort of, I'd never heard of him. Um, I didn't sort of know much about him. I didn't know where it come from or anything beyond what I'd read in the papers. And I suddenly thought, well, let's see what he's like. He's sent him ahead. He's obviously important. And of course, within minutes of his debut, he came on as a sub against um, Sheffield Wednesday. It was just obvious that this guy was just amazing. And I was already, in a way, sold on Wenger just because I thought whoever plucks this guy out of, you know, out of left field and puts him in our team is clearly knows what they're doing. Mm. No, he was one of the early signings, along with Remy Gard as well, who I thought that he kind of came in not just for playing purposes, but part of somebody who represented Wenger in the dressing room, uh, of course. Um, Joel mentioned Glenn Hoddle there. There's a quote from him I've got here as well, because he was one of the only sort of people who knew and worked under him. And he was England manager at the time, of course. He said he has an English mind, but also a German mind, which is very disciplined. He prepares a guideline on how the club should function on the playing side and how individuals should work. And if anyone steps out of line, he has a ruthless side to him. That's when the German side comes out, said Glenn Hoddle at the time. I mean, the famous headline was Arsene Who, wasn't it? Um, and then we had um, a, a very good piece in The Guardian by David Lacey as well, which if you go back and read, I've read it today, it's, it kind of, it's quite amazing to how he predicts what happened. He basically calls Wenger could be a new breed of manager and who start for the Premier League and things like that. But um, he, at the time, it was very bold to say. I mean, he, he goes on to say about Ron Atkinson and that style of manager is kind of dead and, and, and going out. And it's, it's a great read. I wasn't going to use the whole quotes on it because it's quite long but if you can dig it out David Lacey in The Guardian it, it's, a, it's a great read indeed um, there's a couple of quotes I'll read in just a second as well the first one is from Tony Adams and he's talking about his first kind of 
um, meetings with the, with Arsene Wenger. He said, at first I thought, what does this Frenchman know about football? He wears glasses, looks more like a school teacher. He's not going to be as good as George Graham. Does he even speak English properly? I mean, I think that shows the attitude of sort of foreign managers at the time. Lee Dixon said, the players fold in in front of us to this tall, slightly built man who gives no impression whatsoever of being a football manager. But Chaz, as you said, that kind of sort of endeared him to you, didn't it? The fact that he was different, and we'll talk about in a second what he brought to the club in those early stages, but that he was really, I mean, there was this Arsene Who staff. I mean, people, football in England, they, there was a slight rejection of him at first, wasn't there? Oh, very much so. I think that um, people, yeah, people were very suspicious of him. Um, and yeah, within the club and outside of the club. And he, he really had to put up with a lot quite early on. Um, I mean, it's not a sort of story to delve into great depths, but there was, as people know, like a completely untrue and unsubstantiated rumour that went around in his first, I think his first week as the Arsenal manager. And um, Claire Tomlinson, who um, was at one point a reporter on Sky, but at this point, despite being a Spurs fan, was uh, the Arsenal uh, press director, press lead press officer. And on her first day in the job, this very unsavoury rumour, which everyone knows about um, and is untrue, went around. And she was the one who had to go and tell him that this room was going around and what it was. And you can imagine now, on your first, your first morning as a press officer, you have to go and knock on the manager's door and say, people are saying that about you. And then it turned out that linguistically, he didn't understand what she was saying the allegation was. And so she had to sort of spell it out in even more um, graphic, sort of detail. graphic details. And she said she's never seen a face you know, like that, the expression. And what he actually did was really smart, which is the only reason why I bring up such a sort of depressing part of the world is that there were some reporters on the doorstep on the doorstep of Highbury and he went out and he said, what do you want? And she told him not to go out, but he said, I'm going to go out. And there were a couple of tabloid guys there. And they said, we just wanted to know what you wanted to say about the rumour. And there were also some TV cameras there. So he looked at the TV cameras and looked back at the reporters and said, what room is this? Knowing that they wouldn't report, they wouldn't repeat it in front of a camera because they'd be too scared to. And they said, oh, just the rumour. We wondered if you had a comment. He said, I'd like you to tell me what the rumour is. And then again, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say what it was. And then he had a massive go at them and just said, you shouldn't be wasting your time, you know, dealing with stupid things like this and you should just go away. And, all that. and he completely faced them down and they went off with, that, with their tails between their legs. Well, you know, that just endeared him even more to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rumours apparently as well that sort of they, they accused him of upsetting his first season as well. I won't go into those rumours because they're nonsense anyway. But yeah, it's, it's a great anecdote to say, you know, Wenger and his authority was, figure as well. Go on, Joe. There was just some, like, Alex Ferguson was trying to undermine him straight away when he said, No, oh, they tell me that Arsene Wenger's coming here and speaks five languages. He goes, Well, I've got a 15 year old lad from the Ivory Coast and he speaks five languages. It's like one you try to undermine him like that. Like, you know, like it's not a remarkable thing that a manager would come in. You know, half, half the managers in England, the English ones, can't have to speak English, let alone any other languages. And it was wrong because men could speak six languages. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, really... it was just under this, you know, there was this suspicion of intelligence and any kind of intellectualism was kind of snooted at and, and sort of the snobbery looked down upon you know the, the, the cleverness and intelligence is to is suspicious and it's something to be wary of and you know and football at that time obviously was still very lax 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 you know and all the rest of it obviously things like you know the coach it was was Blackburn away his first game yeah it was yeah yeah 
Yeah, and and the, the the famous chants on the bus that we all want our Mars bars, and <laughs> all the players are in a huff because he's he's banned them chocolate. I mean, Wenger grew up in a restaurant, so he's gonna know about nutrition. Yeah, I mean, but the fact that all the players like got in a proper cream puff with him because he wouldn't let them have Mars bars before the game, it's just an astonishing show of uh, just really juvenile immaturity <laughs> that they would all be in a huff about with him because of that. It's, I mean, that day with the sort of ridiculous brick walls he was hitting as soon as he landed yeah I mean this is what Wenger brought to, to football and I mean in hindsight when you read the sort of things he did early on they're really simple to, to you know Chaz you'll know this as doing a running book you know as a physical specimen as a sports person these sort of things is what you have to do to succeed so he wanted to eradicate the drinking culture at Arsenal I mean they'd been successful in that previous era but football was changing the Premier League was changing so he got rid of that he banned drinking on days off banned casual drinks together he introduced pasta and chicken that you know amazing unique combination of food <laughs> you know discouraged red meat and junk food as Joel says famously got rid of Mars bars I mean they're not kind of thinking about it then they probably seemed radical ideas but that to make your body better this is what you do now and this this came with Arsene Wenger but in hindsight it's like well what did you expect to to move on but in at that time Chaz it really was something brand new to these guys wasn't it yeah absolutely I mean looking back it's so funny it would be hilarious to dig out some of the old football focus and other sort of little mini features that TV people did on Wenger because you're right the way people talked about it like he's got them eating vegetables like he's actually saying they're vegetables I mean who'd ever thought of that it was as if he'd said they should go and do their training on Jupiter or something it was amazing but and then there were these sort of supplements as well that you know they got like creatine and stuff like that which were talked about as if they were you know completely sort of avant-garde sort of out there sort of supplements and but what was funny was that you did notice the difference because, again, I mean, I used to go along to the training ground quite a bit through 90 minutes. And all of, it sounds a weird thing to say, but all of the players suddenly looked taller. And I realised that this must have been the stretching because he was getting to do stretching, yes. which is another thing yeah. I used to talk about on Football Focus. Remember David Seaman going on there and going, he gets us to do stretching and like everyone like looking at each other like, wow, this is amazing. Can you believe what you're hearing from this man's mouth? There's a footballer doing stretching. But um. Yeah, I remember they all used to look really, really tall. And um, that must have been the stretching. And then the other thing where I noticed it was in matches very early on. Um, in the last 20 minutes, there would just be this stamina in our team, which the other team did, never, ever had. And in the last 20 minutes, I just have this almost this image in my head, visual image of like us just driving forward at teams, um, perhaps winning a corner. And as they went over to take the corner, you'd see the opposition defenders knackered, breathless and in shock. They were like, what is going on? There's 20 minutes to go. We should be winding the clock down. And, you know, we would have done another surge at them. And so then when I read about uh, creatine, uh, I remember thinking, you know, I remember wandering up to my local high street and going, I love some of that action. And so, yeah, he, he did bring through all these things. And. Very quickly, uh, at England get-togethers, of course, um, other players would, uh, possibly having been sent by their managers, club managers, or possibly just personal curiosity, would be asking, you know, Dixons and Adams and people like that, you know, what's he getting you to do? And so I, I imagine it probably spread out fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. It did. Uh, it made me think, Joe, about the the spe- when we were watching that May United video and they were eating spaghetti bolognese and uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a pre-match. And you know, you know even now we know the it's light quite, meal. 
Yeah, a light meal, which is quite a stodgy affair indeed. But yeah, that's what Wenger brought in. Um, so that was his appointment. We're going to talk about his, the, the seasons, firstly his first season, then that amazing doubles winning season in just a second. We do have an interview. It is not Arsenal theme because I got let down at the last minute. So for those who may want a little left field, different point of view from the 90s, we've got one for you right here. So here is me speaking to former Aston Villa goalkeeper, Nigel Spink. Now courier to the stars and many other people. Watch out for his carrot and blue van drive around Birmingham, talking to us about his time at Villa Park in the early 90s. Here he is talking to me earlier this week on Alive and Kicking. This is Gary Stevens, and you're listening to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Remember, keep it 90s. Joining me on the line now, a pleasure to speak to someone synonymous with the Villa, uh, especially in the 90s and, and the 80s as well, Nigel Spink. Welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Nigel. Um, obviously, most people will remember you from the glory Villa days of, of the 80s, but we are a 90s podcast. Um, you were firmly the number one at Villa Park come 1990. What sort of state were the club in for those who, don't, who are new to that era? Where were Villa in sort of the early 90s for you? Um, yeah, I mean, in, in, in good nick. Um, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the Glenn Taylor years, the Ron Atkins years, um, they were all, they were all excellent times. Um, and it was exciting times for the fans. I think the, the club was still in a bit of transition from being relegated in, uh, 87, um, and, and getting back to where where they sh- where they deserve to be, really, for the supporters. Mm. That that first season uh, in the nineties, you of course had Doctor Joseph Venglos, very very different, very new to that era of the Premier League. What was it like, for, firstly, hearing that he was coming, and what was it like working under such a at the time was unusual appointment for for the English football? Uh, yeah, it was a um, yeah, it was a very interesting appointment. Um, we were all quite shocked. Uh, when he took over from Graham Taylor, uh, I can remember uh, being on pre-season tour in, uh, in somewhere in somewhere in Europe. We were, I think, in Scandinavia maybe. And uh, John Ward, Graham Taylor's assistant at the time, he ca- he came and announced after a pre-season game that Joseph Engross was taken over. And it was, I had a lot of time for Joseph Engross because um, you could see that he knew his stuff and he was an excellent manager, but. I think it was uh, the players, the group of players that were, that were there at the time. They weren't very receptive to his uh, style of management, and, and it made it um, it made it a difficult situation. Do you think he could have been? He was kind of ahead of his time in terms of where the if he'd been appointed maybe five ten years later, it may have, they may have given given him more time at the club. Well, that, I mean that's the that's. That you hear that so many times that he was ahead of his time, and I think he, I, I, I generally think he was. You know, he was, um, he was very astute. Uh, he, he brought in modern training techniques, really, which were, which were ahead of their time, and it was difficult. Players found it difficult adjusting to that and changing their mindset from what they've been used to doing. Mm. He, he was idealised the season before Rod Axon came in and obviously a completely different character um, still got a lot of time he was very much a big personality of the 90s Ron what was Ron like to play under? Oh he was fantastic he was uh, I mean it was a transition period for me because um, the club had brought in Mark Bosnich who, mm-hmm. um, who, who came in and 
eventually obviously took over number one spot from me. Uh, so it was it was a transitional period. So I, I sort of stood, you know, after the initial uh, year or so, I stood back a little bit from from the sidelines, and we went to Wembley and beat Man United in the um, in the League Cup, which was which was a magnificent day um, for the club and. Um, with, with just a br- brilliant atmosphere because United were, were a major force, you mm. know, then as they always have been. But um, it was it was just a it was it was great times, and I remember um, when Ron got the sack. I remember you know there was no uh, he, he wasn't subdued about it. He, he didn't criticise anybody about it. He, he, he in fact he brought in a, a crate of champagne the next day. The day after he got the sack, he brought a crate of champagne to the training ground and we all we all drank a toast to what we you know what what had happened together with Ron. Yeah, the, the, the year that we always remember under Ron is the, the first season of the Premier League uh, when you came that close to, to winning it. What, what didn't happen for you um, in that league? Well, how did May United pick you in the end? Um, I think it was just um, we weren't able to sustain our uh, our ball through the year, um, and it was it was it was really towards the end of the end of right at the sharp end of the season that, that Man United you know, uh, turned on the gas and, and we couldn't stick, stick with them. Um, and it, was, it was majorly disappointing because of the opportunity it was to win that, to win the, uh, to win the league. But, um, you know, fair play to Manchester United, the great club they are. They, uh, they knew they know exactly how to, um, how to deal with situations like that and we didn't. Mm. You mentioned Wembley, um, obviously a big highlight for you as well. You met a great night for it and beating a big team like Man United. And- was that at the point of your career quite a big deal because you were kind of winding down? What was that night like? Um, yeah, it was, hey, it was, it was just a, a, tremendous, a tremendous occasion. You know, um, I'd say Fuzzy played played in the final, one, um, but but the whole occasion was, was magnificent. It was just a, a unique occasion. I think Villa have got a, a great history in the League Cup, and, and, that, and that was just a, a continuation of it. And I remember, I remember, you know, a couple of years after that, when Brian Little was in charge, and they went back to Wembley again um, to beat Leeds, I think it was. And I, I left the club at the time, and I'd gone to West Brom, but I went there as actually as a supporter and uh, sat behind the goal, at, uh, uh, which was which was which was fantastic. Mm. You mentioned moving to West Brom. I mean, that was after your Villa career I mean how difficult is it for, you've been at Villa a long time how difficult did you find it to move on and what was, was it like at the, at the Baggies um, yeah it was strange it, it was strange I've got to say it was strange to start with um, different different atmosphere but what a lovely a lovely club West Brom is and uh, you know, once I got over the, the, the initial um, uh, not shock but the initial over the city to West Brom uh, and leaving Villa and, and not going to the same training ground that I had done for 19 and a half years. Uh, I, had a, I had a great 18 months there, really good 18 months. It was a, a good group of players. It was a shame that we couldn't achieve more um, in, the, in the second tier, but you know that's that's the way what they are, what way it was. And, um, it was, but a great, you know, uh, I met, you know, Ray Harford then as, as manager who took over from Alan Buckley, uh, and it was just a pleasure working under Ray Harford, what a, what a great coach he, he was, and 
an excellent manager, and I think the baggy supporters still remember those times uh, under Ray Harford very fondly. Mm. Uh, before we go, we can't ask you, my, uh, my brother-in-law is a big Millwall fan, I, he'd be amiss if I didn't ask you about, you ended your career down at the Den, what was what was that like with a lot of young lads, a young Tim Cahill and people like that, what was it like playing for, for ending your career down there? Yeah, I mean, when you look at that squad um, that, that was playing under, initially, um, under Billy Bonds and then under um, uh, Keith Stevens, um, and, and Big Al, it was um, it was a, it was a, a fantastic time for the club. The, the, the Tim Cahill's, uh, Sean Dyche, who's gone on mm. to make you know, who's having a, a great career as a manager. Um, all, all, all that squad really had had a lot of talent and went on to um, to to have great careers and were really good careers. So you know, fair play to recruitment side of Millwall at that time and you know I still follow Millwall very fondly they were um, that was three years that I wasn't sure how it was going to pan out but I really enjoyed the three years there uh, and what a great set of supporters I know they get a lot of bad press but they don't after they don't after look after their own and uh, you know they are uh, they are tremendous support and uh, I, I had three great years then Brilliant. Well, my brother will be very pleased to hear that. And finally, we always ask this um, for you of that of that year of the nineties. Who was the sort of best players you, you came up against, and, and the best players you played with? Um, oh, that's a real, a real difficult one. Um, you know, uh, Paul McGrath, um, mm-hmm. a defender that played in front of me, um, was was magnificent. He, he had everything. He could head it. He was aggressive uh, in the tackle. Uh, he, he was a footballer as well. He could play. He could play football, um, and he, you know, he was probably, possibly, um, one of the best players I played with. Um, players I played against, you know, you look at, um, well, I don't know. You look at Gascoigne, Paul Gascoigne, and Tottenham when he did his Tottenham era. What a player! The strikers, Gary Lineker, people like that, it was, were just sensational to play against. And, uh, you know, we, we had some, some great times in when we when we uh, did the Europe as well, playing in Milan. So, we, you know, there's too many fantastic mm. players to name one really. Brilliant. And, and these days, you're you're a career man. How's that going? Yeah, um, yeah, it's going really well. The business, um, you know, there's only, it's only a small business. We, keep, we want to keep it quite. Uh, quite small and uh, but you know as long as we're out on the road every day we're, we're really happy and um, we've got the we've got the we've got the two new vehicles which we've got decked out in claret and blue um, so uh, you know we're uh, keeping the theme brilliant well thank you very much for your time Nigel great to hear your memories all right Ash thanks very much hey this is Alexi Lawless and you're listening to Alive and Kicking the 90s football podcast remember keep it 90s Good stuff there from Nigel Spinks. So yeah, a little bit of different flavour for you there, but we're going to head back to Arsenal now. So we've talked about the appointment and the Arsenal hooness 
of, of what happened in September 1996. But as Joel's already mentioned, his first game was against Blackburn in a 2-0 win in October 1996. Um, that first season then, that's gone to 96-97 it was. Um, it was a season that Arsenal almost uh, mounted a, a title challenge. They were going into it till the last or breaths of the season. Uh, February was a horrible month for them where they had uh, they didn't win a game. Uh, two draws and two defeats, uh, May United and Wimbledon. That famous Vinnie Jones goal, which I remember was live on Sky. It just always sticks out in my mind, maybe because it's the only time Vinnie Jones actually looked like a footballer. Um, but Chaz, what did you mean? What were the early thoughts of that Wenger team? Obviously, he was still in the building process. We're still in the early stages of uh, the, you know, the likes of Patrick Freire changing the mindset of that team. What was it like to watch the team at that point in the first season under Arsene Wenger? I loved it because um, I remember the key moment that stands out in that season for me is sort of not the, not the most dramatic one, but it was very symbolic for me. I think we were at Sellers Park and I, I'd gone along to the match and I remember um, Vieira doing one of his crunching challenges um, so midway through our half. Um, and the other thing that he did really, really well, you know, was he, uh, he'd get up really, really quickly, um, having done the crunching challenge and then pick up the ball and surge forward. So it was one of those classic moments and he just thumped into whoever the Wimbledon player was, got the ball, jumped up onto his feet and just ran forward with the ball and knocked it off either to Merson or Wright to score. I can't remember which one. And I just remember in that moment, just looking at it and thinking, this is, an, this is a really, really good manager and this is a really, really good, well, obviously a really good player, really good manager, really good team. And I felt very, very excited about the future because it was just so different to not just anything we'd seen at Arsenal. There weren't that many players like Vieira around at any club then. And um, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed Burkamp getting you know better and better because he'd always been like a favourite of mine, but it was really that season where he started to sort of really show things. I think what the where we let ourselves down was, I know we'll come to the double year in a minute, but after the, we won the double, one of the things Wenger said was, he said a key difference between the two seasons was what we did in what you'd call the mini league. Like how we fared against yeah. the top four in 96, 97 was not good. How we fared against them in the following season was much better. And so, you know, that that is very much a work in progress. You know, we were doing really, really well against lots and lots of teams but we still didn't quite have enough about us to overturn, you know, the sort of the, the monopoly and the might of, of United and some of the other big teams. Mm. Joe, do you remember the, I was just going to the fixtures, because QPR were long gone, but, well, not long gone, they went the season before, but you played Arsenal that season. I'm, not, I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, but do you remember the, I mean, Middlesbrough was 2-0 win for Arsenal. John yeah, Hartson, there. And, and I knew you'd be there. John Hartson yeah. and Ian Wright scoring. Do you remember anything you remember of that sort of early Arsene Wenger days? This is what I this is what I remember more than anything from that day is looking at Vieira. And yeah. there was collective shock within our area of Riverside of people going to us, I was going, Who's the four? Who's the four? He's awesome. He looked like he had bionic legs. And yeah. he just went they were signing from AC Milan and we were just like, God he's great. and he was I mean, we knew straight away with him. I think Hartson scored in the first five minutes. Yeah. And, uh, but we remember that I, I just remember that Vieira was the absolute driving force and powerful and young and tall and you know like I said these bionic telescopic legs that were just getting balls that he had no right to get and that was literally within sort of two minutes everyone was like oh god I don't like the look of him you know and it was you know customary for Arsenal to just sort of beat us all over the place by quite a lot of goals in, in those days um, 
But yeah, I mean, that was the standout for me was Vieira and what a player. And you knew straight away what a player he was going to be just because he looked the complete package. And, you know, I'd never even heard of him. No, no, he's one of that again. I think football, we would now, we'd we'd know a bit about him because somebody somewhere on Football Manager or something would have signed him or some, you know, some website would have found him. But yeah, at the time, Chaz, I've had an argument with many of Arsenal, mate, that I don't think that one of Wenger's biggest mistakes that he's ever replaced Patrick Vieira. How much of agreement would you go with that? Oh, very much so. I mean, we had uh, Gilberto, but um, he was as close as we got to a replacement, but he he, he wasn't a, a Vieira. Um, and then since Gilberto left, we've had nothing to, no one to equal either of them. You know, we've had no new Vieira and no new Gilberto. And much as, as I said earlier, as a Wenger loyalist to the end, that was, that was a major problem. Um, you know, for any club not to have a player, a, a decent defensive central midfielder is a problem. But when you've, introduced an amazing one in Vieira and a very good one in Gilberto. It's it's a real standout when you don't bother getting another one. You look at some of the others we've had like Slamini, Granite Xhaka. No, they're they're not they're not the same. No, they're not. Could be an ex manager as well, but that's that's for another modern podcast. <laughs> um I wanted to just another quote from Tony Adams. This was during that first season as well. He'd obviously warned to Wenger, um, saying that he'd found his sense of humour. His actual quote was not only does Wenger like a good laugh, but he can laugh at himself. He's a gangly wise man. I don't know if that's a, a, back, a backwards compliment or not, but apparently they, they nicknamed him Inspector Clouseau as well because he had this kind of nature to him. But I, I suppose it kind of says it all about Wenger that he had this intelligence and that we said, but also he could still muck in with the lads because there was still, as Joel mentioned earlier, that sort of culture in there as well. Um, let's move on to the 97-98 season and then. That's the, you know, the first big moment of Arsene Wenger's Arsenal uh, career. Um, Chaz, we spoke quite extensively about this on the, the show we did on that season um but that I mean that summer it all began you know he kind of shaped began to shape the squad now he had a, more of a pre-season Paul Merson obviously left for Borough he signed some youngster from PSG called Nicholas Anelka that nobody heard of and became like, half big, a million quid yeah half a million quid <laughs> became the biggest profit margin probably ever in the, especially in that decade um but even you know Emmanuel Petit arrived Mark Overmars was a big signing but even the players like Chris Ray and Gilles Grimondi he, be- he began building this squad of his own shape and each of them had their own role to play. I mean, I know you probably didn't know much about them, but were you excited going into that season knowing the squad was now Wenger's squad? Very much so. Um, Anelka had actually come the end of, of the previous season, so we'd seen little little glimpses of him already. But um, I remember I, I moved from... There were two, sort of, on a personal level, there were two big moves around that time for me in my life. I moved from 90 Minutes, which folded, sadly, to Shoot Magazine, and I also moved uh, into a flat just round the corner from Highbury, you know, which is, you know, what football fan hasn't had that wanky you're, dream. You're if they basically don't... living the fever pitch lifestyle at that point. Exactly. I was yeah. just about to say that. <laughs> well, so I, used to live, I used to live a lick in a spit from Ayrton Park and that wasn't quite too glamorous. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the good thing about Shoot was it was all interviews. At 90 minutes, yeah. you know, I got to do some interviews and to go to the training ground sometimes. At Shoot, it's all I did. And... We kind of at the beginning, and we also we covered much fewer clubs at shoots. There were very few players and clubs who were really worthy uh, of a cover for shoot. Whereas the ninety minutes, you know, you might do an interesting piece on a QPR right back. Um, you know, for sorry, there's the wrong club to use as an example. QPR, but you get <laughs> what are you trying you to say there? The, yeah, in the context, <laughs> but you get what I mean. Yeah, I get what you, you mean. You weren't going to get a, a QPR. Oh, well, Trevor Sinclair would have been a, we, a good we, one. Well, the choice. Yeah, all right, go on. Yeah. <laughs> so, but not so much Carl Reddy. Uh, Carl oh. Reddy posters were, were at a premium. But, even, um, even at Loftus Road, Chaz, they were. Yeah, go on. <laughs> 
I used to go along to the training ground all the time and shoot. And I remember that summer when they had the pre- the official press call day, and Wenger lined up his signing. So you had, you know, Meninga, Matthew Upson, Gilles Gamondi, um, uh, Chris Ray, Mark Overmars, uh, Emmanuel Petit, and all these, you know, all these different players. And he lined them up. And I remember that alone. I just thought, look, and Louis Bermorte, and I thought that alone looked amazing. And then we all got to sort of sit and interview them around tables. And like I just said earlier, I'd never known an atmosphere at a training ground of such calm assurance. You know, training grounds normally when I used to go to them previously at Arsenal and at any other club, Man United, they were twitchy places, you know, where nobody quite seemed at ease and all this. But at Arsenal, everyone seemed really, really relaxed. I remember talking to Petit and Overmars and, you know, there wasn't that kind of nervousness that you sometimes get when you interview a new signing at a club. As in, you know, hopefully I can find my feet soon. These were people who like knew exactly what they were going to do and were raring to go. And I was really, really excited. I do remember being a bit uncomfortable during that press call because um, the tabloid press got Louis Balmorte and Ian Wright together and said, you two do a photo together pointing at each other. And they said, why? And they said, because you look the same. Oh, no. And they don't God. really look the same. Um, and it was just really awkward. And I don't think they could get why... As they did the pictures, Ian Wright was laughing his head off. I think they thought, yeah, Wrighty's in on it. So I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure Wrighty was thinking, you bunch of absolute muppets. And he was laughing at them, not, yeah. at their, not with them. But yeah, I was very, very confident. I did feel getting the pre-season in um, would be very, very key. That you know, for, for any manager or even player, but it's the same with managers, you need to get that pre-season in. If you arrive during the season, it's hard to impose yourself. Um, I remember thinking straight away from the start that, Overmars was going to be key. I loved Overmars. I've been an Overmars fan already, but you know there was a lot of nervousness about his knee, and I thought if he can make it, then we'll probably make it. Mm-hmm. Joe, we we spoke recently on this week in the nineties about the best Premier League teams. Um, this Arsenal team from ninety seven, ninety eight, with that midfield of Vieira, we've mentioned, and Petit, who I think is still an underrated, beautiful footballer, and then Burkham out front, who for me, as I broken record, best foreign import I've ever seen in this league. It doesn't, I mean, the Invincibles team is always sort of lauded above this team, but they are up there, aren't they? This team in that season, they're, they're, a, they're one of the best Premier League teams, weren't they? Oh, God, absolutely. I mean, just dazzling. Like I said, we were on the wrong end of a few big whacks from Arsenal. Like, I think there's a 7-1 and a 7-0 in there and a, and a, and a big a, a big one when Kanu got a hat-trick against us, I think, in the FA Cup when he scored with a back heel and... I got stuck in a turnstile leaving the Riverside early because I had my backpack on and I got stuck and I couldn't get out just to cap <laughs> off a really magnificent day. Um, but yeah, what a, just what a side, just exciting. And they, and they were almost like the the opposite of everything that you'd expected from Arsenal for the last previous 15 years before that. You know, suddenly you had Overmars bombing along. I mean, 5.5 million quid for him. That's magnificent. Vieira just talked about three and a half million quid. First seven trophies, you know, won seven trophies at Arsenal and they cleaned up and did other things, you know. And just, yeah, outstanding. And even sort of begrudgingly outstanding. I think even even at Old Trafford and Tottenham, you'd have had people saying that they were uh, wonderful teams, even though, you know, they wouldn't perhaps want to admit it. Mm. As Charles mentioned, we, we spoke extensively about that season, but I think there's three kind of key elements 
to that season. Obviously, Arsenal got off to a pretty average start. It wasn't until they beat Man United at Highbury that David Platt, that people started to think, oh, this team's starting to gel. Then in that second half of the season, obviously, bookmakers paid out. We're on Man United winning the title again, but 10 consecutive wins, including that win at Old Trafford, which we spoke recently about on this week in, in the 90s, where Mark Overmars scored that famous goal. I mean, it was that that was key to catching Man United. And then probably one of the most sort of orgasmic moments for, as, a, as a football fan, especially for an Arsenal fan, that Tony Adam goal uh, at Everton to clinch the title. I mean, just tell us about your emotions during that period of um, the, the wins, the Old Trafford, and then that crescendo. Right, so a key part of that season is when we lost against Blackburn at Highbury in the sometime in the autumn. Um, we were, as as you said, we were at that stage. We were right out of the league. Yeah, uh, so it was contention. And it was there was 13th a, a, a of December. Meeting. Sorry, actually, Chaz, that was the thirteenth of December. So quite late on oh, in the right, season. Yes. Yeah. So there was a there was a players' meeting called uh, soon afterwards, where you know it was like a crisis meeting and. As the story goes, Adams and Bold pointed at Vieira and Petit and said, they're not giving us any protection. Um, you know, they're surging forward. We need them to give us protection. And various other big tactical points were made, as the legend goes, by the players. And that those were then implemented very quickly. And then we went on that amazing run. So some Wenger critics now um, point to that and say... You know, that this proves that he's not the genius, people say, because we were actually struggling in our one of our big seasons. And, and it took Adams and Bold to point the obvious problem out. I see it slightly differently. I see it as a genius or a clever manager is somebody who listens to people mm. and takes on what they say and who has the grace and the, and the humility to say, I might be the manager. You might just be my players, but I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to look at what you're saying and I'm going to implement it. So, yeah, then we beat Man United at Highbury. You know, we'd been very much in their shadow for a long time. And I remember at the end, um, I think it was Platt scored the, scored the winner. Um, and, I mean, his career alone, I mean, I won't sort of get diverted, but his career alone at Arsenal is kind of a really weird one. It's at once really, really exciting. And, you know, he did loads of amazing things. At the other hand, on the other side, it's kind of like, that was a bit of a, a bit of a nothing stay, really. Um, but I remember I was there that day and there was real, real excitement. Uh, I think it was 3-2. Yeah. Um, you know, it went 2-0 out, I think, didn't they? They went 2-0 out? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. And then um, we... No, yeah, you, we just, you went 2-0 yeah, out and then equalised. Yeah, that's what I remember, yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, I remember leaving that game absolutely buzzing, you know, really feeling like it was all back on and that all those things that we'd sort of... This esteem that we'd built up uh, over Wenger was was justified after all because we had wobbled. I think a few people wobbled a little bit early that season. Like maybe maybe this isn't going to turn out how we thought. And then we just went on this run. And I just remember um, <laughs> I was trying to give up smoking at the time. And um, oh, I looks like you picked the wrong thing. Stop smoking cigarettes. <laughs> exactly. And that was just that was just amazing. And we just kept. But the thing was was that it was the expect expectancy that I think when I look back on it now it was the expectancy. I expected us to win. I expected us to win well. I expected us to, you know, to really really overpower teams. Um, and you know, once we got on that run, we generally did. I remember up at Black, uh, Blackburn um, around the Easter holiday time, just absolutely demolishing them. And again, it's, it was all sort of in tandem for me with working for shoot and just constantly arranging um, interviews with Arsenal players. And so just 
you know, non-stop on the phone to the press office or to any of their kit manufacturers or whatever, going, you know, we'll, we'll do these interviews. And it was amazing just going along on a Saturday, walking back to my flat um, that I shared in um, Finsbury Park around the corner. And, um, and then on, on the Monday, perhaps being, you know, interviewing Mark Overmars or whoever. So we get to the old Trafford one you mentioned. And um, it doesn't always work out like this, as, as you know, with magazines. But this time it did. I don't know I've told the story before, but anyway... I did an interview, a cover interview with Mark Overmars for the week of the match. And so it was him on the cover in the yellow away shirt saying, we can win at Old Trafford. And then that's exactly what we did. And to me, it's without doubt my favourite Fender match of his whole reign was that match because just seismic. You just knew that, you know, that the, the power, it was almost like we'd won the title that day. Um, famous people celebrating in the crowd. Who's the guy. Yeah, well, there was a guy with sort of wild black hair who yeah. went completely mental. And then there, was a, then there was a girl who went mad as well. And, um, yeah, they became sort of like prototype famous fans. But the Everton match was amazing. I remember meeting up with a friend in the morning and we went and knocked on the doors of every Tottenham fan we knew on our way to the match. I'm all <laughs> covered head to toe and I had like a big Arsenal top hat on that I bought somewhere. Um, we both had Arsenal shirts. So we just went and just... We just looked in. We just like went to the house and I was just looking in, just thought, you know, as we're passing, because we were pretty confident we were going to win the league that day. And, and even if we didn't, we had plenty of time, chances. There were still several matches to go. And, um, yeah, when Adam scored, it was, I was right behind the goal he scored in. And, yeah, when he just let, he, he had actually, there'd been a goal against Spurs in um, Wenger's first season, which we spoke about a minute ago. But, um yeah, where Adams had done a, a, a volley. It, this was a different volley than the one against Spurs. It was kind of side on to the goal and he sort of lashed it in. And um, But he sort of showed there that he actually did have this touch and that he could, um, you know, knock, knock, knock the ball in with, with some panache. Uh, but the Everton one was just so special. Bold passing to Adams and then him just slamming it in, you know, left foot volley. And... You know, the, and then the Christ-like celebration. And, you know, the personal story also for him that he'd sort of turned around, um, you know, his own personal issues and his own personal demons. And it was just perfect. But I remember um, as we were cavorting, having won the league, um, I was in the North Bank lower tier. And at one stage, I sort of looked up as if to look up to the heavens. And um, I noticed that the upper tier was bouncing and I was really scared for a moment. And I saw Keon freaking out on the pitch and, <laughs> bless him, running up to stewards and pointing at it, going, look at that, look at that. Because they were all jumping up and down at once. And it was really, really springy. And I remember people on radios sort of, and then being reassured, yes, we've uh, we factored in when we built it, that at some stage the Arsenal fans might actually express some some form of support <laughs> and excitement and, and emotion. Um but that double team is, without a doubt, my favourite Wenger team. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, for outsiders from the club, understandably, they, they, it's often assumed it'd be the invincible team that is, um, you know, our favourite and the invincible season would be our favourite. They, they weren't even invincible that season. Borough beat them twice. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like that, 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 that 98 team, they were just so... It was the blending, I think, I liked. Yeah. It was like, you know, George Graham's back five, effectively... Um, Wenger's central midfield, uh, Ray Parler, you know, Ian Wright was still was still here then um, at Arsenal, and it was just the perfect perfect team. Dennis, of course, you know, Dennis tended to he, he's 
his Arsenal career has longer periods of mediocrity than some people would care to remember. Uh, there were periods, particularly around the turn of the century and the early the early years of the, of the 21st century, where he wasn't that good. But when he did tend to come good was was in our league winning season. I mean, cause and effect, effect and cause. You can argue either way, but. He was amazing, the, the hat-trick at uh, Leicester. And, and, and you've you got to remember that this is 97-98 season in the 94-95 season. So, you know, a couple of years before, you know, we'd been managed by Stuart Houston. We'd had a midfield, which was people like David Hillier and, and Ian Selly. Uh, Martin Keown used to play on the wing for us sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, uh, he was surprisingly good at it. He was no Tony Daly, was he? Let's be honest. (laughs) And so it was kind of, this was such an amazingly quick um, turnaround. And the one thing I always remember um, as a football fan for that sort of the nature of that turnaround is is walking away from the Parc de France in in 1995. um, After the Naeem goal. After the Naeem goal, yeah, with, you know, we'd, we'd had... It's such a scandal hit season, you know, the Merce, Paul Merson drug scandal, the, the bung, George Grand Sachs, Stuart Houston, then Naeem doing that. And I remember just thinking, like, this is a real low. But I was really, when I, I didn't realise in the ground it was Naeem. Everyone at home did watching on TV, but I just, it all happened so fast that all I knew was, was that some, some wanker had you know, <laughs> ruined it for us. And when I found out it was Naeem, I was actually pleased. I thought, I want this to be a pure, complete disaster because that's the only chance we have of Arsenal, which is a particularly conservative club, it always has been, of actually really taking this club and putting it forward. And goodness, they did do that. It's funny you mentioned that Blackburn game in the Easter period. I remember that. That's one of the games that stands out for me because it's that team of, that's when I thought this is some amazing football team I'm seeing. I think it was 4-1. And then I think three days later, they beat Wimbledon 5-0. And it was that point, it's like, no one is stopping this team. We are seeing something amazing, different that we'd never seen before. Um, what's your final note on this season, Joe? I mean, for a fan, that Everton uh, result and, and moment is, is up there. But even as a football fan, you can appreciate that. I kind of liken it to more recently that Leicester winning the league and Nessa Dormer uh, at their ground. One of those moments as a football fan, you can just appreciate regardless of who you support, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 just as Chaz said, you know, it's the blending. It's almost like the crystallisation of of the Wenger era and, and it's kind of that now you're going to believe us sort of thing It's it, it, it was always going to be it, it, everybody was then going to follow that path that Arsenal had taken I think after that after that season and especially you know even even your most hardened uh, anti-Arsenal fan couldn't sort of begrudge especially that moment you know that that's that's down as a Premiership classic moment yeah. that now, isn't it? That that game, and it's the 89th minute as well, was it? Yeah, and it's Steve um, Bold, it's Adams, it's Martin Tyler's commentary. It's just it's one of those perfect moments, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, no, and I was just grateful that sold us first. Yeah, they did. They did. Tony Mercer did quite well for you as well that season, didn't they? Um, that's Wonderful. Got us promoted single-handedly. Exactly. Yeah. We'll quickly talk about the other two seasons uh, before before we go. Um, I mean, that summer, Ian Wright left, so there was an end of the era for him. Um, didn't sign another striker, which is probably an early sign of some of Wenger's stubbornness in terms of who he should sign. And I mean, Canu signed in January, but they went into that season with Justin Elker and Burkamp. Um, Chaz, I always see this as I used to have a friend who's, who used to just demand that the treble could have been stopped by Arsenal if they just got over the line there was that famous defeat in the swan stages of the league campaign to Leeds the Hasselbank header and of course that semi-final which we t- we talked about on this week in the 90s last week you almost really stopped that treble that season didn't you absolutely and and you know as you know because I've said on a previous 
episode, you know, I ghosted with, with Dennis Bergkamp on a sort of weekly basis for two years. And sometimes that moment would come up where we, you know, didn't score the penalty against in the semi-final. And he definitely saw it as everything went from there. Like if he'd have, if he'd have tucked away that penalty, you know, we'd have won that as far as he's concerned, we probably would have won the, the league. Uh, you know, who, and then who knows, would United then have won the, won the Champions League? You know, it's, it's, it's impossible to say, but the, the similarity between the two campaigns in terms of points and so on and in terms of our, we had an indifferent start, I think we kept drawing at the beginning. You know, you have that hangover, don't you, where you've won the league and suddenly everyone, everyone's pleased for you over the summer, but then the next season you become a scalp. And we definitely felt that in particularly the first half of the season. And then the second half, we went on another long run of, mm. of wins. The, the bits that stand out for me were, I loved Kanda. I mean, I just absolutely loved the guy. Um, thought he was amazing. Um, and Nelka's form was, was really good that year. Uh, but um, the bit that always stand out for me is standing on the final day of the league season at Highbury and cheering on Spurs with our radios to our ears. You know, this is pre pre-smartphones yeah. by some distance and so we needed them to beat um, United and I can't remember who we were playing uh, Villa um, Aston Villa yeah and um, they went 1-0 up and I remember us all jumping up and down and singing come on you Spurs and it was just one of those really surreal moments looking back I'm very very certain that I didn't have much hope I don't think many people had much hope that they you know, just needed the two results to go the right way but we thought one might but not the other um, but yeah, when I, I think it was Ferdinand put them up, uh, one nil up. Yeah, the entire Arsenal crowd singing "Come on, you Spurs" was uh, just a, a really funny moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you only lost four games that season, less than you did mm-hmm. the season before. It was uh, you finished a point behind Man United. Man United finished a point behind you the season before that. So it was was very very close that season. We didn't even mention the FA Cup the previous season, which you also won um, with yeah. that brilliant FA Cup song as well. People say we're boring. We'll keep on scoring now. Of course, <laughs> the Arsenal won the best FA Cup songs of that decade. Um, the only final note I was going to mention, I'll, I'll switch this one to Joel before we get Chaz the final word on him. I mean, nineteen ninety nine as we close into the decade. Um, a certain Thierry Henry signed for Arsenal. And again, at the time, he was a winger. I wasn't really really sure about him. But is it testament to Wenger that he saw, maybe not what he'd become and ridiculously how good Thierry Henry was, but it was a sentimental moment for Arsenal and Henry in the next phase of, of their sort of Arsenal-Wenger reign, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know what, what it was like with you, Chaz, what you thought of this, but I, I was doing a bit of research earlier on and uh, I, we're going back to Nick Hornby again, but Nick Hornby asked the question, could Thierry Henry be the French Perry Groves? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Perry Groves, yeah. I think we all know the uh, answer to that. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I remember thinking, you know, when they got him that he was a winger and didn't necessarily need, need a winger, you know, I think Overmars, was Overmars still there? Yeah, yeah, he didn't go till 2000. Um, and 11 million quid then seemed like a hell of a whack of money. But obviously, we all know what happened, and, and Thierry Henry is still one of the standout players in Premier League history, Arsenal history. You know, he's still a record goal scorer, which that just seems to happen. It, it seemed like Ian Wright was hanging around waiting for that record for years and years and years, and then Henry seemed to blast through it in about four seasons or something. So, what wild. 
Well, yeah. And did you see his sparkly beard the other day on Sky? He's got somehow he's he was on he was going around Twitter. His beard sparkles, but only a, be- a bejazzle. A, be- a bejazzle. I bet Perry Groves had ever tried that. Um, they also signed um, Davos Suka that season as well, which I was so so excited about because he's one of my favourite ever players. Didn't quite work out for for Davos Arsenal or at West Ham. Uh, Chaz, let's just quickly finally then talk about Thierry. I mean, at the time, as Joel said, it was a bit of a whack for somebody who was kind of a winger. What were your thoughts on the Omri signing at the time? I, I was, well, I, the main memory that I have is that it took him so long to get going. But then yeah. and uh, when he did, you know, he was just, even in, even in that first season, once he started scoring, that, you know, he got a whole load in in, in very short period of time. But I often use this as a reference when I'm, you know, talking about current day Arsenal players uh, with, with other Arsenal fans is that, you know, this sort of need for instant success, which I suppose is not just an Arsenal thing. A lot of top clubs now, they have that. You know, it's easy to forget that Henry took the best part of a season to get going, and that it took, and that Robert Pires's first season was uh, was also fairly average. But yeah, I do. Rem- I remember being very, very excited by him. But the moment he started getting near Ian Wright's record, I just went off him, and he, he's. <laughs> I actually don't like him that much. I know it's ridiculous as an Arsenal fan, but I something about his character rubbed up against me. I was obviously very grateful for all the stuff he did for the club. But um, I was just such an Ian Wright fanatic, such an Ian Wright fanatic that anybody I think who would have broken his record, I, I wouldn't have liked. Um, and I think there's another hangover from it that sort of goes forward with, with Wenger beyond the 90s. But um, is that I think that he got a bit intoxicated by his tweaking of players. And Henry was one of the first and Lundberg would be one as well. This When he'd buy a player and move their position, mm. he did it with Petit as well. So several players in the 90s he did this with. But God, he's got it wrong at times as well. Since like Arshavin, I'm really worried about Aubameyang. I mean, I suppose it doesn't really matter because Wenger's going, but I'm really worried that, you know, that, that before I knew Wenger was going, it seemed like he was going to try and move him onto the wing. And I think he's made some amazing tactical tweaks in his time and moved players into new positions. But he, he's also got it wrong quite a few times as well. Mm. Well, let's, let's sum up some final thoughts then of Arsenal Wenger. I'll, I'll throw you to, to Joel first before we have the final word from our Arsenal representative. I mean, for me, I mean, longevity is the first thing I'd say because I don't think we will ever, ever see a manager stay that. I mean, he was the last of a breed. Obviously, Alex Ferguson, Paul Tisdale, Exeter. I know he's on for quite a while at the moment. I don't know offhand, but he's into double figures. 11 years. 11 years, been, yeah. Been at it, yeah. But even that's sort of half of which, I mean, we're not ever going to see that again. In this modern era, it doesn't happen. So, I mean, that I definitely take from it. And then obviously how he changed the culture of football. But Joel, I mean, what are your final thoughts on Arsene Wenger? I mean, just that just transformed a team that was probably outside of, well, yeah, definitely outside of Highbury, sort of universally disliked, known for grinding out 1-0, you know, 1-0 at the Arsenal, winning all the time, you know, which nobody likes, away from a, from a team that isn't yours. And, and sort of turning them into this respected, forward-thinking um just wonderful football inside who really nobody could begrudge. I think we were quite lucky in, in that period that, you know, we, we had United, we had Arsenal and there was, you know, even begrudgingly from me, you know, Newcastle United, there was a lot of sort of big, fun, uh, enjoyable teams to watch. But the, the, the thing you can most mostly say, you know, and it's been said to death over the last few days is, you know, what change you brought in, in how things, how everything's changing your diet and club culture and all the rest of it. But I think I think that is the, the most wonderful thing you can say about him is he did it and he did it all and he won it all, you know, and that's perfect. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him turn up somewhere else, you know, next season. 
Mm, yeah, that'll be an interesting thing because there's, I don't, there's not many sort of places you to see him turn up at the moment. But Chaz, your final thoughts then. Sum up those first few years uh, of Arsene Wenger at Highbury for us. Just so much excitement as an Arsenal fan, just, just buzzing all the time, just confident all the time. You know, Wenger said what he wants is, is a, you know, one of those quotes from him, you know, that he wants his team, his fans to wake up on a Saturday morning and, and feel excited instantly when they remember they're going to see their team. Well, my goodness, he, you know, he succeeded at that. It was like the opening stage of a parable, you know, where, this, where the character in the parable, uh, you know, builds this enormous success and excels and soars. And then beyond the 90s, which we don't need to dwell on, you know, of course, he set himself such a standard that it, what he'd done at the beginning of his career at Arsenal actually became a stick to beat him with. Um, but yeah, those were the glory days. There was, uh, I'd say, almost mm-hmm. as if it was like the turn of the century. Although we did subsequently get the double and the Invincibles year, it was like those were the pure years where there was, there was just joy. And just to watch somebody completely transform a football club um, and to put down such roots, it was obvious, that's another thing, it was obvious very early on that he was going to seek to put down roots and redefine everything. We haven't even touched on things like the training ground and how intimately he was involved with even what type of forks were used in the canteen, how he used to hover over the players and tell them not to put sugar in their tea, but that if they did, he would make count how many times they stirred the tea to make sure that all the granules <laughs> had been properly done. This is just a man with such attention to detail. And like I said earlier, on a personal note, just to watch a sort of a geeky, sort of introverted sort of type of guy just become a footballing god, I I just loved. Mm. Perfectly put, perfectly put there. And yeah, that tea story I read, I think Henry Winter tweeted it because he did a long um, 10 block tweet about Wenger on the day that he uh, announced his um, decision to leave. And I think that was included, the whole tea and the granules thing. Just another little thing that obviously worked in their favour. Well, that was Arsene Wenger in the 90s um, a great look back there thank you very much to gents um, Joel firstly where can people find you if they want to get in touch on Twitter uh, everything's at Joel Baby Herc J-O-E-L-B-A-B-Y there you go C and also on Instagram it's been a lot of pub dogs yeah you've been around you're doing the pub dog circle if that's a thing Pub dog, yeah, pub dogs is quite a thing. Well, I just keep going in, uh, in the pubs where there's a dog. I did take Archie to the pub. He's been in the two pubs with me, but he didn't like it much. Oh, okay. He's more he's more of a home cat. Yeah, obviously. he's more home body. Yeah. yeah, he likes drinking at home. And, and Chaz, if people want to find out about you, Arsenal, the book, where can they find you on the social? So I'm on Twitter at all that Chaz A W L T H A T C H A S. All that Chaz. Same on Instagram. Uh, the book is called Running Cheaper Than Therapy. And that's it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, gents. Um, if you're waiting for this week in the 90s, we've flipped it this week. That's going to be later on. But so this is your first slice of AK 90s for this week. We'll be talking uh, Ryan Clough's retirement. Um, I love that with Keegan and a bit more Keegan, which will please Joe as well on this week. Oh, in yeah. I can't wait you can't wait for that again. Yeah, Kevin yeah. Keegan. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll hear all about that. Plus, as I mentioned in my intro, a new kit special coming with a great John Devlin as we talk about World Cup kits of the 90s all coming soon here but until then i've been ash rose this has been alive and kicking until next time keep it 90s